When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 15 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, May the 14th. First, I'll be talking to Dr Sam Huppert, the CEO of ProMedicus, the listed technology provider which helps large medical facilities store and transport large images. And then I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the Frydenberg budget. But now let's talk to Dr. Sam Huppert. Sam, once upon a time, uh, your company, ProMedicus, was trading around, what, 50 cents or 20 cents a share? Now I see it's about $46. Yeah. How did it happen? Oh, look, I think uh, a, a few things. We, we had made an acquisition in 2009, a company called Visage Imaging, which is our go-forward platform at the moment. I think it took a while for us to pad out the technology and, and, and make it a bit more ubiquitous. It was a great technology platform. We've expanded it significantly in, in, the, in those earlier years. And I think we realised that the way it was positioned in the US market and the sales and marketing organisation we inherited with the acquisition weren't well suited and we changed all of that from the ground up, pretty much started again and I think slowly, slowly started to gain a presence. 212, 213, we won some contracts which, you know, then were material compared to what we'd won before and then in May 214 we won our first really significant contract in the US and the rest, as they say, is history. That sort of set us on the map, and it's been a busy seven years since. Well, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, uh, I, I mean, in February you announced an underlying profit before tax up was something like twenty five point nine percent, and uh, that was despite COVID. Yes. And uh, despite the appreciating Australian dollar, and what impact would that have on a medical imaging company such as yours? 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, a few things. First of all, look, March, uh, April, this time last year, was the peak impact of COVID. People didn't know what, the, what how to deal with it. All hospitals scrambled. They, they um, postponed all elective work and radiology volumes, which is how we charge per, per test, went down quite precipitously. But thankfully, it was only for a short period. And towards the end of... April 2020, we saw steady increase in, in volumes. And so by the end of the year, we were back to where we were at pre-COVID levels and slightly above because they were backfilling or, or doing tests that had been postponed. And also we were able to work from home pretty much right from the get-go. So in mid-March, we were 100% work from home. We've been able to support the client base and importantly, continue our sales momentum. In fact, the last nine months, most probably the busiest we've ever had in our, in our whole career. So whilst it was an initial impact, um, I think we were able to, you know, navigate through that quite successfully. So it was a minor impact of, of less than 5% last year, but this year it's, it's, it's business as usual. Well, COVID did have an impact on people undergoing medical procedures. I mean, what impact would that have had on uh, ProMedicus? Yeah, as I said, I think we noticed a big drop-off, particularly in things such as breast screening and those sorts of areas back in April, May last year. But then people still needed radiology and diagnostic imaging. People were still sick for other reasons. So we saw a steady increase back. And, and by you know September, we were at near normal levels for volumes. And then, as I said, from October onwards, we were actually greater than 100% compared to pre-COVID levels for similar periods. So, you know, we pretty much made up a lot of the Delta. Uh, so, you know, from a financial point of view, uh, we um, went through pretty much unscathed. And, of course, uh, the last uh, six months, you've had uh, two big contracts with Intermountain Health in January and a seven-year deal with US Health System, which is yeah. the University of California. Yeah, well, if we wind back to sort of June when we started, at the end of June, we won one of the top uh, academic hospital systems in Northwestern in Chicago. Um, it's one of the top medical schools and a very large hospital system. 
And then we, we won its New York uh, counterpart in NYU uh, back in September. And then uh, in December, we won a, a contract for a health system in and around um, the Washington area called MedStar. And then early in the new year, in the uh, new calendar year, as you mentioned, Intermountain and, and UC Health, which is all five University of California health systems. Uh, they're all owned by the University of California, but they largely operate as five independent systems and they unanimously agreed. So it'll be the first time all five health systems will be on one platform. So they're all unified on a single diagnostic imaging platform? Correct. That's us. Yeah, they will be. Yeah. That's quite extraordinary. That's quite extraordinary. And so, I mean, what was interesting with your own background, I mean, I see that you you started out as a medical student. I'm, 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 a, I'm a doctor by profession and a lot of people ask me, but yes, I did practice. I had my own practice in Coburg in Melbourne, uh, a general practice, and then this sort of fell on me as an idea with uh, Anthony Hall. At that stage, doctors didn't have computers. There, weren't, there wasn't even the IBM PC when we first started talking about it. And then uh, it grew from there and it just got so busy that I realised I, I had to choose between being in the IT space or clinical, uh, clinical practice. And I thought, well, I could always go back to practice. So we, we, I, I left the practice full time. And as I say, the rest is history. Well, I mean, when, when you were at medical school, I could say that uh, computers weren't even used at that time, were they? Not at all. And that, that was the reason my Anthony and I met at, at a wine tasting years earlier. And he was a um, systems analyst. And uh, I approached him because I said, look, in my medical the training, the word computer wasn't even used. CT scanning, which is computerised tomography, had just come out then. It just shows my age. And I just thought it'd be the new form of literacy. And I was really just looking to buy a computer for myself to tinker around with. And the one thing led to another and here we are. So, I mean, in those early years, your business would have been more about keeping, helping uh, medical practices keep clinical records and stuff like that through computers, wouldn't it? Well, it was all, in the beginning, it was all about billing because doctors literally build either from a shoebox or a system that was used called Kalamazoo, which was like bills written in triplicate and you tear off the ticket as a reminder. And so, that, you know, we, it was all around the billing first and then eventually scheduling or practice management. We still have a product which we sell here largely in Australia, which we call the Radiology Information System or RIS. And, you know, the two biggest radiology providers in Australia use it, that's uh, IMED and Helios. But that's all around the business side, you know, the billing, the scheduling, the product we sell in the US is a clinical product. So it's what the radiologist uses as their desktop to call up the images, enhance them, make them into 3D as needed, et cetera. So it, it's more like a, think of it as an Adobe for radiologists. Now, uh, when did you come to realise that uh, clinicians and radiologists were transforming themselves from film to computer-based reporting? Yeah. And, 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 and the impact that had on imaging? So initially what, what happened is we, we saw that coming in the late 90s and we realised there needed to be a, a merger or an integration between our informatics because we knew who the patient was, we knew their, de- their details and we also knew what tests they were coming for because of the scheduling. And so we wrote some middleware that then interfaced the clinical systems at the time. Now, most of the clinical systems, they, they have an acronym called PACS, but, which was... Basically, the you know the, the digital radiology 
that was all done by large companies, either from the equipment manufacturers like Siemens and GE and Philips, or the people that were in X-ray film that realised their businesses, they needed to cannibalise them like Agfa, Kodak, Fuji. And we, we chose Agfa as a partner because they were quite dominant here in Australia and particularly in the US. So we had middleware that automatically when you called up someone in, in, in our system, all the images opened and it was all coordinated. But then we realised in 2007, we needed our own clinical system. And that's when we you know, were looking around in the market in 2009, bought Visage Imaging and that became our clinical component. And, and as I said, that's, that is the product that we sell in the US. And US is now over 80 something percent of our revenue and growing every year. Now, I mean, when you bought, of course, Visage Imaging, I mean, that was during the depths of the GFC, wasn't it? It was. It was a life sciences division of a NASDAQ-listed software company that specialised in wow. software for the defence industry. Yeah. They had spent a lot of, you know, they'd spent money building life sciences as a second string to their bow. For various reasons, they had to divest it. It was a loss-making division. They had a number of companies, one that I think, led them up to the altar and left them there because they'd done all their due diligence and, you know, it was a locked and loaded deal, but it didn't go through. And we were given six weeks to do our due diligence and settle settle the transaction, which we did end of January, 1st of February. So it was, it was very quick. But, yes, in retrospect, it's most probably the best deal we've ever done. It's probably the best business decision you've ever made. Yes, I think so. We've, we've been very happy, you know, not just financially, but, you know, that we... The product itself is, you know, on world stage and does a lot of good. It's, it's something that really enhances a clinician's capability. So it's exciting, not just because of the financial point of view, but also what it actually does in terms of the clinical side. ProMedica started taking off in 2013, 2014, when you had a whole yeah. deals going. Yeah, so... Effectively, what we did is the product which we bought had this great streaming technology, but it was only used for the very advanced visualisation, 3D, 4D, which is moving 3D. So it was really designed to sit on top of someone else's system that was predominantly 2D and then be called in when you needed the, the more fancy things. And I looked at it and said, look, a doctor, radiologist, even if they're looking at a chest CT, they need to look at the chest X-ray. So you really need one desktop that can do everything. That was the primary sort of driver. And it sounds obvious and it sounds simple, but even to this day, people that do 2D don't do 3D and vice versa. We're the only ones that do both. And it took a while for the market to understand what made this mousetrap so different. We were sort of a bit in the shadows, 11, 12, 13, but as I said, we won a really large um, RFP with uh, Sutter Health in the West Coast in May 2014. And a lot of a lot of our competitors thought, who are these guys? And more importantly, they're too small. They'll never be able to put it in. But uh, thankfully, we proved them wrong. And that reset us in the market. And um, we've sort of progressed significantly since then. Well, I would, I would hazard a guess. I would, I would suggest that um, ProMedicus could have only taken off because both of you were doctors and you understood exactly what was required. Well, Anthony, was, Anthony wasn't a doctor. He was not a doctor. He was a computer programmer. But, look, we had a lot of experience in radiology. Um, you're right. We had it from what we did here in Australia. But, look, the US is a different market and these large, particularly academic um, institutions have, I won't say bespoke, but more exacting requirements. But, we, you know, we've, I think we've grown into that role and 
to be truthful, I think we've gone further quicker than most people would have imagined, given the competition and sure. the market that we're dealing in. And, um, you know, so we, we've been very pleased with our progress. Well, Sam will be watching ProMedicus very closely and uh, congratulations and uh, thank, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair, this budget puts us well and truly in the red. It is a deficit that stretches out for a decade. We have a debt which will reach $1 trillion in 2025 and I've never seen a budget that doesn't have any cuts. What's your view, <laughs> What's your view about it? Well, I, I looked at this and, and I think some people are already calling this the Oprah budget because they're spending for you, they're spending for you, they're spending for you. Um, they have spent money on almost everything that they could see in the economy, except universities um, and the ABC. But uh, more or less, there is money for everything and everybody. Um, they're spending like there's no tomorrow, but what is missing from this budget is um, beyond spending is a theme, is a reform, is a something that is not just a business as usual. Um, more or less money is pouring out of Canberra, but there's no idea. There, there, there's no concept, there's no theme to this budget that, that kind of makes it a unifying whole beyond we have to keep spending to keep the economy going. And reminds me of that very old joke, you, you may have heard it, where uh, soldiers are, are in a fort and they're surrounded by the enemy and uh, somebody goes running up to the officer and says, sir, sir, we're running out of ammunition. And the officer says, well, keep firing, don't let the enemy know. Um, and, and this is just keep spending. Don't let anybody know that we've actually come out of a recession, that we were before the recession, the budget was still in deficit from the GFC, that the debt from the GFC still had not been paid off. So as much as the government likes to tell us that in 2019-20, they were going to have a surplus, in fact, we never did. We are spending not quite at World War II levels, but we are spending up there uh, the most in our history over the last 50-odd years. Um, last year, we spent 32% of GDP. That's extraordinary. And the other thing about this budget is that a lot of the allocations are not just one-offs. Like the allocation for aged care will continue for years. And, and, and it must do. Now, we, we, we discovered this during the Howard and Costello era is that when you announce even a one-off, every year you announce a one-off, once again, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. In time, that gets built into expectations. And so I've been reading in the newspaper this morning, people are saying, well, now there's a, there's a bipartisan agreement that we are going to have a bigger level of government. Now, as I've been saying for years and years and years, whenever we have a crisis, we always end up rebalancing the budget at a much higher level of GDP. Now, we haven't yet rebalanced the budget from the GFC. Um, we are not going to be rebalancing the budget from uh, the, the, the COVID crisis for, for many, many years. What level of GDP are we going to balance it at? Because bearing in mind, a lot of the spending that was announced last night is consumption spending. It's not investment spending. Now, there is some investment. We're going to be building more roads and more bridges and those sorts of things. But most of it, um, aged care, child care, all these things is consumption spending. We, we, we are paying people to consume. We are not paying people to build, to invest, to grow the economy. That's extraordinary. It took us 10 years to recover from the GFC. This will take much longer than that. Much, much more. Because bearing in mind, even though the government keeps on saying, oh, you know, the economy is roaring back. 
Um, I don't see the economy roaring back at all. Um, yes, their, their revenues have gone up because iron ore prices have gone up. Uh, Mr. Frydenberg was claiming last night that unemployment is lower now than what it was when they came to office. Now, bear in mind, when they came to office, we were still recovering from the GFC. So, you know, uh, unemployment was unusually high then. I mean, that's hardly a boast to be proud of. The other thing is that hours worked aren't that much higher than what they were before. So I've actually been keeping track of the hours worked number over the last year or so, simply because the unemployment figure is measured by a convention that if you've worked for one hour over the last two weeks kind of thing, you're, you're counting as being employed. When, when I go to, to the city, when I go into the CBD, I see many businesses are still shuttered. Many businesses are still shut down. Um, at peak hour, I still see seats available on the train going into the city. So it doesn't look to me that people are going to work now. Maybe people are still all working at home, but um, there are still large elements of the economy that, that haven't yet recovered. So what we need to be looking out for is uneven recovery, um, especially around the employment area, bearing in mind that we've got no immigration coming in at the moment. So a lot of skilled migration is not occurring. Now, skilled migration occurs when we have shortages in Australia. Now, it's all very well saying uh, we should employ our own. Um, yes, you should always employ your own when you can, but we've probably got a massive skills mismatch. So last night they were saying, oh, we, we're going to try and bring in uh, more skilled workers um, when we can. But bearing in mind, we still have thousands of actual Australian citizens stranded overseas. And the budget is predicated on a whole lot of assumptions. Like, for example, the whole population will be vaccinated by the end of a year. <laughs> yes, um, I, I am very hopeful that, that that will in fact be the case. But I, I kind of had the feeling we'd all be vaccinated already. Um, so, so that's an assumption. Um, there are other assumptions. There's going to be 10% uh, business investment growth. Um, next year. Now, that'll be the largest level in the last 15 or 10, uh, 10 to 15 years, um, that there's going to be economic growth next year of 4.5%. Now, if we've got economic growth of 4.5% and unemployment is already pretty low, why isn't wages going to be growing? Um, so we kind of say wage growth is going to be like 2%. So many of these numbers look like they're plucked out of the air. There's going to be continual tax relief for low-income earners. Now, that sounds awesome, but bearing in mind, low-income earners don't pay very much tax in the first instance. That's how the system is supposed to work. Um, so if you want to stimulate the economy, you actually need to start having tax cuts for high-income earners. Um, if you have a look at some of the, 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 the good things in the budget, um, there will be a, a patent box. So uh, they want to sort of encourage innovation, but they only want to encourage innovation in the area of medical science and biomed. Now, why not just throw it open to everybody? Why not just say, look, come to Australia and, and patent your innovation here, develop your innovation here, irrespective of what it is. So even when they do have some sort of bright sparks here and there in the budget, um, nonetheless, the government is still trying to pick winners. Which is, which is very disappointing because I'm kind of thinking, let a thousand flowers bloom, let it all go, open slather, let's, let's grow the economy out of this instead of let's try and spend our way out of this. Now, my reading of the budget is uh, that it's actually labour light. They have actually pinched a lot of the policies of labour and put it in their budget and it makes it much harder to, for Labor to present themselves as an alternative government. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, how much of it is an election budget, bearing in mind that an election is in 12 months' time? 
Um, I think this is very much election budget because I think um, if, if you recall at the beginning of the year, there was some talk there would be an election um, in November of this year, October, November of this year, and then suddenly that went away again. I think that is very much back on the cards because, as I said before, the, this was an ideas light budget. And as you say, this is a labor light budget. I really think that all the good ideas, tax cuts, spending ideas, like the, the reform ideas are being held back for an election. So I think very much we're looking at an election before the end of this year. Um, yes, it is a labor light budget, but bearing in mind when labor comes to office and they go into election, they have to have a coalition light budget. Um, you know, you, you always have to appeal to the median voter. So it's not surprising. Uh, um, that we would see this sort of thing. And certainly it, it wasn't surprising to see that all the things that were spent money on um, last night and the arguments that they made. One of the things that did, a, well, I don't want to say annoy me, but, but, but sort of great is a lot of the spending is actually in areas that are state government responsibilities. And very often we see a lot of things which state governments do are really federal government responsibilities. I would actually like to see a return to clear demarcation. The federal government does this. The state government does that. Now, the area where I think was really missing last night was the government spent a lot of money on domestic violence. Now, nobody is going to say this is a bad thing, but that is a state government responsibility. The, the federal government did nothing about the male-female superannuation gap. Now, that is very much a federal government responsibility. Now, I don't want to say the federal government should just pump money into, into women's superannuation funds, but they, they could be thinking innovatively in that space. So I think they could have done more on that and actually perhaps shamed or, or, or put up a matching program for the state governments to do something about domestic violence, which is clearly in their purview. So they did nothing where they have pure responsibility and they did heaps where they've got no responsibility, um, which, which kind of, if, if you're looking at this, you're thinking, well, what's the game here? And of course the game here is we're going to an election. So I'm expecting to see something about female superannuation at the next election, because I think like everybody else, I was expecting to see it last night and I didn't. Well, Sinclair Davidson, that's all very illuminating. It certainly gives us something to think about. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. So what's happening in the news? Well, more than $29 billion in temporary business and personal income tax cuts, a $33 billion boost for care services, and $4 billion more for training programs are at the core of a budget that aims to create 250,000 jobs by the end of next year and drive the unemployment rate below 5%. The biggest single item in the budget is a $17.7 billion package to support the aged care sector, after an official inquiry exposed shocking conditions in some institutions. The budget, which may be the last before a federal election is called, forecasts a dramatic improvement in the budget bottom line, with cumulative deficits over the next four financial years $114 billion lower than predicted just five months ago. Josh Frydenberg's 2021-2022 budget locks Australia deep into the red for years to come, with large deficits out for many years to come fuelled by increased spending that will permanently enlarge the role of government in Australia. Frydenberg will run up a deficit of more than $100 billion next financial year and a similar deficit the following year, despite the economy growing at over 4% and unemployment falling to 5%, all in the quest, he says, to push unemployment below where it was when the pandemic struck. Treasury's forecasts anticipate that to happen in 2022-23, when unemployment will fall to 4.75% before heading to 4.5% after that. 
While that would represent the tightest labour market since before the financial crisis, it will do little to fuel wages growth. The government sees the wage price index only reaching 2.75% by 2025. This means a real wage cut for Australian workers next year and no real wages growth until 2025, when inflation will reach 2.5%. Australia's net debt will rise to nearly $1 trillion by 2025, despite the lower-than-forecast deficit this current financial year. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's 2021-22 big budget spend aligns both economic orthodoxy and the political needs of a government with an election due in a year. The deficit in the 12 months through June 2022 will be $106.6 billion, or 5% of gross domestic product, exceeding economists' $80 billion estimate. That reflects higher outlays for infrastructure, aged care and tax breaks. Net debt is expected to be at 34.2% of GDP in June next year and peaked just shy of $1 trillion in June 2025, or 40.9% of GDP. That's about half the US and UK levels and about one-third of Japan's, according to the Australian government. Yet the road to an election by next year is clouded by a sluggish vaccination rollout. The budget assumes overseas borders will remain closed until the middle of next year, suggesting Morrison will be campaigning for another term while the rollout is still unfolding. Hopes of a return to international travel this year have been dashed in a document that contains a grim warning that normal flights won't resume until mid-2022. Another year of hardship for tourism and education is reflected in the budget allocating $2.1 billion in support for aviation, tourism, the arts and international education providers. Employers who've grown accustomed to being able to recruit workers from overseas are also starting to feel the pinch with skill shortages developing. And those hoping the government would stump up for substantially more quarantine facilities to allow more people back into the country will also be disappointed. Among other key spending items in Frydenberg's fiscal blueprint are $7.8 billion to extend tax relief to lower middle income earning Australians, $20.7 billion for the extension of a temporary program for expensing and loss carryback for assets bought by firms that has already supported a rebound of machinery and equipment investment, $15.2 billion in new commitments for road and railway projects across Australia, $17.7 billion for the employment intensive aged care sector, and $1.9 billion for the COVID-19 vaccination strategy, an 81-page women's budget statement, its third since 2018, that includes $1.1 billion for women's safety, a $1.7 billion investment in childcare, and $350 million for health and wellbeing measures. And Commonwealth Bank has reported cash profits for its third quarter of $2.4 billion on the back of surging lending to business. The number was almost double the third quarter last year, and 24% higher than the average of its quarterly results in the first half. And a bidding war has broken out for Crown Resorts after Star Entertainment Group lobbed a highly conditional offer and Blackstone upped its bid for the embattled gambling giant, which appointed Steve McCann Chief Executive Officer. The Star, which owns casinos in Sydney and Queensland, has lobbed an $8.5 billion nil premium merger proposal with a string of conditions. The proposal comes as Crown also entertains an $8 billion offer from US private equity investor Blackstone Group, which lobbed a new proposal over the weekend, raising its indicative proposal by $0.50 to $12.35 from $11.85. A third suitor, US investment fund Oaktree Capital, offered $3 billion to fund Crown's buyback of Consolidated Press Holdings' 37% stake in the company last month. The Star merger proposal comes after the New South Wales regulator found Crown unfit to operate a casino at its Barangaroo. Tower and the assets listed giant faces royal commissions into its casinos starting in West Australia on Monday and Victoria next week.
The star proposal means a combined group would own six resorts, including flagship casinos in Sydney, Melbourne, Western Australia, Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And Woolworths will push on with its plans to separate out Endeavour Group, which includes Dan Murphy, Selamarsid, BWS and Langston. Saying it has determined a demerger into a new ASX-listed company is likely to enhance shareholder value over time and is preferable to other available options. And global cosmetics brand Estee Lauder has highlighted a recent revival of makeup and skincare sales in Australia, particularly at bricks and mortar stores, to herald the beginning of a makeup renaissance as economies open up, vaccines are rolled out, and consumers resume spending. Estee Lauder, which is one of the biggest beauty brand owners in the world, specifically mentioned Australia along with Israel and China as nations that were leading the role in a rebound in sales with people going out more for either socialising or work and requiring replenished makeup supplies. Interestingly, the uplift in consumer demand was most evident at bricks and mortar stores, not exclusively online, as in some jurisdictions where COVID-19 is under control, such as Israel and Australia, shoppers feel more comfortable visiting large shopping centres and malls. And Facebook will invest $15 million in regional Australian newsrooms as separate discussions for payment for journalism on the platform continues with Guardian Australia and Country Press Australia. The Silicon Valley giant is in discussions to partner with the Walkley Foundation to distribute the investment in the form of grants which aim to support smaller regional, rural and diverse newsrooms as they develop new products and strategies to expand reach and revenue. This initiative aims to build on past investment including Facebook's $1.5 million reader revenue accelerator which brought together 11 regional and smaller publishers with experts to develop subscription strategies and the Facebook's journalism project COVID Relief Fund which provided $1 million in support of 17 Australian regional and community newsrooms financially impacted by the pandemic. The new investment is separate from deals Facebook is making with news publishers to pay for journalism to appear in a yet-to-be-launched section of the platform called Facebook News to be dedicated to quality news. It is understood Facebook is aiming to launch the section later this year. Last week, Facebook signed a deal with Anthony Catalano's Australian Community Media, which publishes the Canberra Times and the Newcastle Herald, to pay for its journalism to appear on the platform. Facebook has also signed deals with Seven West Media, Nine Entertainment, owner of The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian Financial Review, News Corp and smaller publishers, Solstice Media, Private Media and Schwartz Media. Deals with a wide range of publishers will help the Silicon Valley giant avoid being included under the Morrison government's news media bargaining code, which became law at the end of February. No platform has yet been designated under the law designed to level the negotiating playing field between news publishers and tech giants. And businesses are knocking back orders and competing with each other for workers and materials in an attempt to keep up with a furious economic comeback that has led to all-time highs in business confidence and conditions. More positive economic indicators include a 1.3% surge in retail sales, stronger-than-expected employment figures and job ads in March and April, and a record US $200 billion iron ore price, which have driven consumers and businesses to react rapidly to the domestic and global recovery. Another huge federal budget splurge on Tuesday, with home-building incentives that have driven house prices up more than 10% in Sydney in the past five months, is also encouraging business to invest and rehire. The NAB Business Survey reported that profitability, trading, forward orders and hiring intentions have all soared back to records. Overall business conditions jumped 8 points to 32 index points in April, while confidence also set a new survey high, rising 9 points to 26 index points. The survey's employment index, watched closely by the Reserve Bank, was up 7 points to 22 index points. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Brian Westfall from global consultancy firm Gartner, about how Australians and Australian companies are adjusting to working from home. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the budget. 
In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 